as well. And I'd like to um, welcome you to IWP. Uh, I think most of you are familiar with us, but insofar as there are any here who uh, uh, are new to IWP, we are an independent graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a professional doctoral program, seven master's degree programs. Two of those are online programs and 18 certificates of graduate study in a variety of specializations. If you're interested in learning about us, please speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event or visit our website, iwp.edu. Um, I'd also like to begin by thanking our various supporters who make uh, IWP events uh, possible. And uh, to support our work, please visit iwp.edu slash donate. Well, today I am, it's a special pleasure for me to introduce a longtime friend and colleague, Richard Levine. Uh, Richard and I served on the National Security Council staff under President Reagan in uh, the 1980s. Um, and let me just review some of uh, Richard's background. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Technology Transfer and Security Assistance. He directed the, Navy, the Department of the Navy's organization in these matters, uh, during the Reagan years. Um, he previously, uh, you know, he served uh, when we were on the NSC together. Uh, he served as Director of International Economic Affairs. I thought I was the youngest guy on the NSC staff, but actually he, he was younger. Uh, uh, he was also Director of Policy Development. He holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and a bachelor's in philosophy uh, with honors from Johns Hopkins. Uh, he received two presidential letters of commendation and the Department of the Navy's highest uh, honor given to a civilian employee, the Distinguished Civilian Service Award. Um, he also serves as a senior advisor to government officials, including uh, Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo on matters of national security, strategy, and international economics. He is the author of a new book about which he'll be speaking today, Pillars for Freedom, uh, whose foreword was written by Secretary Pompeo. And he also recently co-authored a book with two former national security advisors, Vice Admiral John Poindexter and Robert McFarlane, uh, a book entitled America's Number One Adversary. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with Richard now for quite some time on a variety of issues, and I'd just like to say that he, uh, this country owes him a great debt of gratitude for his years of service and his continuing service. Richard, we welcome you to the podium Thank at IWP. Thank you. Well, I'm going to try to uh, give this address without glasses, but uh, I'd like to talk about uh, what I view as the crisis of the third century. 
Dear friends, thank you for inviting me. Dr. Wenchowski and I have been friends for 43 years since we served together on Ronald Reagan's National Security Council staff. What you may not know is that John and I were in a movie together. I'm going to tell you something that Dr. Wenchowski may not want you to know. <laughs> John is related to the arch-leftist Susan Sarandon. You see, Dr. Wenchowski was played by Chris Sarandon, Susan Sarandon's former husband, uh, in the film Tailspin about the Soviet shootdown of the Korean airliner KAL-007. So John's relation to Susan Sarandon is a bit like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Sadly, my character uh, was deleted on the cutting room floor. All you got to see was my back when John hectored me. At least I can claim I was played by a handsome actor for no one saw his face. Today I'm honored to be here with you. I wish to talk to you about ideas which are both conservative and pragmatic, as discussed in my new book, Pillars for Freedom for which former Secretary of State Michael Pompeo wrote the foreword based on our years of collaboration. I also want to speak with you about some lessons I have learned that may be applicable as each of you move forward in life. History. History leaves its marks. The crisis of the third century of the Roman Empire, which began in 235 AD, brought Rome to the point of complete collapse due to invasion, immigration without assimilation, and overextended military, plague, inflation, internal rebellion, and political dysfunction. America's third century began in 1989, 200 years after George Washington's inauguration. So began our, uh, so began our trial marked by the same momentous challenges faced by Rome. One man, the Emperor Aurelian, saved the Roman Empire from collapse and extended its life in the West by 200 years. Called the restorer of the world, he emerged victorious in battle after battle against the Goths, Vandals, and others, knitting back together a fractured empire. He brought order to a dysfunctional administrative state, battled official corruption, renewed the Roman economy, and created stability in its currency, thus reclaiming the valor and the dignity of Rome. Aurelian, however, does not represent a model for our nation. We do not need an emperor, but a president who can undo the devastating cleavages and losses that have occurred since America entered its third century. Normalcy must be restored through faith in a higher power, allegiance to America's founding documents, and commitment to American exceptionalism. Crucially, every American must realize that we must rise as one people, or we will be fated to fall as many. Liberty, openness to the unhindered exchange of ideas, personal accountability, strength, 
free enterprise and faith in a better life to come. These are the values that built America into the greatest nation in the history of the world. We cannot afford an economy that is destabilized or alliances that wane. You as our nation's future leaders must return America to its conservative roots, entrenching clarity and purpose. Knowledge today outpaces discernment and wisdom, but it is wisdom that is essential in the conduct of international affairs. President Reagan faced a world in which communism was on the march and America's economy was in tatters. By reaching back to the standards that built America, Ronald Reagan not only rebuilt the American economy, he defeated the evil empire that was the Soviet Union. I miss Ronald Reagan. I miss his optimism, for our government today seems resolute only in its description of America's faults. But the supposed leaders of America's institutions who inveigh against our nation, not, uh, do they not know that these same faults may be found in the histories of every land that has ever existed. These purported leaders never speak of America's gifts to the world, for to do so is to disrupt narratives that allow our nation's ruling class to accumulate power and limitless wealth by feigning support for the dispossessed. For example, the nature of the lies that claim climate change to be our greatest threat is revealed by the deceits propounded by scientists concerning the origin of the Wuhan virus. A constellation of scientists involved in dangerous research, abetted by bureaucrats in China and in our country, suppressed evidence that the virus almost certainly was created in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, located within the virus's epicenter. These malefactors did this despite the fact that COVID killed more than three times the number of Americans who died in World War II. Indeed, this scourge is almost certainly the most deadly man-made event in history aside from war. We admire the Chinese people but loathe their oppressors. The Chinese Communist Party, it is this it is thus repulsive that big media and social networks suppressed information concerning the source of this virus better than the most gifted Maoist. The question is why? Why do our elites belittle a nation that has done more to correct its faults than any that has ever existed? Why do they belittle a country that has fed the world, brought democratic institutions to former enemies, while being the engine of the world's economy. Big media is a shell game, and it is one in which the American people always lose. It is a shell game to hide big money made on the backs of the uh, American people by transferring our wealth, our industry, and our technology to those outside our shores. If a congressman, a senator, or a president is guilty of waste or illiteracy concerning the array of financial crimes we face. They should be fired, not praised. But for those who are really in power, in government or in the private sector, stooges are useful. The only antidote is smaller government. According to some reports, 
much of the money appropriated for COVID-related unemployment benefits, totaling hundreds of billions of dollars, was stolen by criminal gangs operating in Russia, Nigeria, and China. The entire management tier of any business would be fired by a company's board of directors. If anything like this happened in the private sector, well, you are the board of directors of the United States. The deep state and woke billionaires love an inept politician. Who better to exploit to attain more power and unaccountable wealth? Indeed, Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer said that integrity in politics is priceless. Is that the reason he so often proves he can't afford it? There have always been clowns in Washington, but until the present decade, I did not realize how dangerous clowns actually are. Our country and government are on a precipice, at risk. America's morality, decency, and exceptionalism are at stake. We should not confuse as a society what is expected with what is permitted, and we should not confuse what is permitted with what is good or advantageous. To forgive is different than to condone. Acceptance of a fact is not the same thing as acceptance in a personal or moral sense. In the first instance, we have no choice. A fact is a fact. The second connotation of acceptance defines our moral self, for our heart is ours. We all must live within our society and its laws, some of which we may consider wrong. Our society, our legislature, our courts, and our executive must reciprocally accept that we are all endowed with the unalienable right to hold beliefs that are consonant with our understanding of God's word or our creed. The first obligation to live within a society bound by laws must never infringe on an individual's convictions so long as no laws be broken. This is the mechanism to live in a society in which divergent beliefs are held. Each person must always be respected, for they are endowed with a soul fashioned by the Creator. This is the truth President Lincoln understood. It is a necessity for reconciliation and for our emergence as one undivided nation and people. The unalienable right to hold our own beliefs grants each of us the prerogative to peacefully protest that which we hold to be wrong or unjust. This right is of such importance that it is established by the First Amendment to the Constitution. To censure what we do not understand is unwise. To censure what we ourselves know through God's grace cannot be but wrong. We need you to bring us back from what could be a fall as great as Rome. We need to restore simple common sense, except in time of gravest emergency, don't spend money you don't have. Allow only citizens to vote, demand IDs, strengthen our borders and our immigration policies. Realize that where there is great wealth, there exists the potential for great crime. Take to heart, as Ronald Reagan did, the following rule. Every defense dollar wasted is a dollar lost toward building a safer America for everyone. The world is not populated by just our friends. A wise administration understands these threats and prioritizes them. 
a weak administration mugs for the cameras and tries to accomplish what uh, can never be accomplished. Does the present administration not know that Iran will never willingly give up its nuclear weapons programs or its effort to create the means to deliver them? I think the present administration and its acolytes in the media are not bereft of this knowledge, but rather more concerned with narratives and their propagation. What must we do in response? We must educate the American people about our nation's founding principles and introduce them to conservatism's virtues. My professor of government, Johns Hopkins, Godfrey Dietzet, would begin some of his lectures with the statement, quote, I don't care what you think, I care what you know. This maxim was once embraced by our nation's faculties. Students imbued with knowledge were encouraged to make up their own minds. Subject mastery was uh, esteemed, not disinformation or rhetoric. This has all changed. It is up to you to undo the present indoctrination of so many. Uh, one conversation can turn the indoctrinated into conservatives or those who prize inquiry. But let me offer my recommendation on how to begin a conversation so that good people who have been misled may begin to question what they've been taught, what they've learned from a disingenuous media. I want you to ask your peers this simple question. Do you always listen to your parents? Next ask, do you always listen to your friends? Do you always listen to your boyfriend or girlfriend? There will be no yeses, not from anyone. Finally, ask this for well, open minds. If you don't always listen to those who love and care for you, why would you place your whole life in the hands of faceless, nameless bureaucrats who do not know if you are alive and would not recognize you if they smacked into you on the street? This simple series of questions is enough to get those who have been programmed, who have been manipulated, to begin to think for themselves. It can be your first conversation, but it should not be your last. Tell these good people how you became a conservative or one who questions. Share with them your faith and your hope for a better future, and they will listen. For truth penetrates falsehood, which ultimately fractures like a sheet of glass. I know that you are surrounded by those who expound that they are woke, though they don't even know what the word really means. Wokeness and critical race theory suppose that race is the main arbiter of all relationships, be they economic, interpersonal, or societal. Each seeks to substitute itself for a fair examination of history and for adherence to Judeo-Christian or traditional ethics. Building upon the work of the Marxist Antonio Gramsci, whose prison notebooks were edited by Joseph Buttigieg, the father of our current Secretary of Transportation, wokeness and critical race theory seek to transform America into a segregated socialist state. It was Gramsci who sought to rescue Marxism from collapse due to its cascade of economic failures by substituting the concept of cultural hegemony for class warfare which Marx espoused. Race became a lever to destroy the West with the evisceration of America the ultimate prize. A new religion of the type dreamt by Robespierre is intended to replace 
the Abrahamic faiths. Wokeness and its handmaiden, critical race theory, are the new idols to which we all must bow down. No, never. Our country. America has been the greatest force for good the world has ever known. We will not be destroyed by the inculcation of a false faith and the indoctrination of our nation's students by a so-called theory that seeks to divide us from our brothers and sisters rather than to unify all Americans as one people. We have made too much progress as a nation to return to a time when people were judged by the color of their skin and not, in the immortal words of Martin Luther King, by the content of their character. Conservatives belong to the party of Lincoln and not the party of the Confederacy. We do not deny the woeful chapters of our nation's history, slavery and segregation, our mistreatment of indigenous peoples, the internment of American citizens of Japanese descent by President Roosevelt, and his administration's turning away of the European Jews aboard the MS St. Louis back into the grasp of the Nazi murderers they escaped. It is because we do not deny our past that we must be steadfast on this principle. We will never allow our country to again segregate or deny freedom or life to any citizen. During Joseph Stalin's dictatorship, the Soviet Union suffered tens of millions of deaths due to starvation or murder not directly linked uh, to war. From 1958 through 1962, Mao's great leap forward killed perhaps 45 million people. As in Stalin's Ukraine, agricultural production was so shattered by expropriation and mismanagement that people in some Chinese villages were forced into cannibalism. These are the communist utopias that fill the minds of our woke billionaires, politicians, stars, and academics who themselves won't eat ice cream if it costs less than $13 a pint. They, they should talk to the people of Ukraine. They should talk to the Chinese immigrants who fled Mao's apocalypse, but they won't. They do not want to give up their fantasies or their false, false narratives, which hinge on one thing. Their control of other people's lives, though they often have trouble controlling their own. Seeking anarchy to bring about revolution, wealthy elites and some members of Congress say police, police are not needed, which is true if you have your own armed security detail. For those without, the means, who, without means who live under communism, the only escape is usually death. For the sake of our nation and our children, we must never allow communism's flag to be unfurled in our land, no matter its false herald. Our Constitution is 4,543 words. With all 27 amendments, it is 7,591 words long. The law that established Obamacare is half as long as the entire Bible. With all its regulations, state and otherwise, more than 10 million words had been written to implement this deeply flawed statute. Before Obamacare was made law, Speaker Pelosi said, but we have to pass the bill so that you could find out what is in it, away from the fog of the controversy. Away from the fog of the controversy, are we living in a communist state 
where all legislators are expected to heave to. What she related is not democracy, it is tyranny. No law going forward should be permitted to be longer than the Constitution and its amendments. If bills exceed that limit, a wise president will not sign them. Only a few specific exemptions should be allowed, such as the Department of Defense Authorization or Appropriation Acts. We stood up an entire country with fewer than 8,000 words. Isn't that enough? These multi-hundred-thousand word bills only benefit the lawyers, lobbyists, and consultants who populate Washington. It is they who actually write enormous sections of these laws, which are then sewn together by some Capitol Hill staffer who doesn't even read what has been written. This way, the lawyers and others can charge outrageous sums for their intimate knowledge of the various laws they themselves have written. President Trump reduced regulation and, and the income of DC's miscreants. This is why he was hated. He threatened to reduce the income of this self-anointed and oh-so-pompous class. A person can at best read a complex legal text at a rate of a few hundred words per minute. Therefore, a law the length of Obamacare would take a minimum of 32 hours just to read. To truly understand it would take months. We thus know that it was never read or fully understood by any of our lawmakers, not one. Most laws fit into this basket. It is up to you to demand change. Threats and ideas. The pandemic that began in China and Russia's invasion of its neighbor have shattered the prism through which the United States and our allies must see the world. This change is iridescent as it concerns global economic relations. We have no option but to face new geostrategic realities that cannot be shirked, lest we face intractable conditions in the years to come. Therefore, we must comprehend that American weakness in the face of aggression will only beget further assaults. The entire world is blistered by the war in Ukraine. Substantial portions of that country lie in ruin. The global economy is fractured, and supplies of cereals, fertilizers, and key industrial inputs such as neon have been reduced. Russia has attempted to destroy Ukraine as an independent country and as a people to mask the Kremlin's criminal regime, which has betrayed a nation so that a selfish elite might steal. It is imperative that the principles of American military and energy dominance, coupled with restraint and the use of force that commits our nation to battle, be advanced. We must be on watch, too, for if China dominates a post-conflict Russia, a pan-Eurasian behemoth could be formed that will be even more dangerous than these countries are individually. Failures within Russia have motivated the Kremlin's unrealized geopolitical objectives, which can, include seizing control of the immense energy resources in the Donbass, confronting NATO by creating a border that stretches from the Baltic Sea to the Carpathian Mountains, and disordering Western economies. The war against Ukraine is a global disaster that could have been averted if America and our allies had acted in 2008, 
when Vladimir Putin invaded Georgia, or in 2014 when he invaded Ukraine. Russia, however, is not the People's Republic of China. The challenge China poses is far greater, for it contests our nation in geostrategic reach. Moscow's objectives in Ukraine are mirrored by Beijing in the Indo-Pacific. They hinge on the perception that America and its allies are dominated by political discord. Our past inaction in the face of Russia's assaultive acts, combined with Western energy dependencies, created a tinderbox that exploded. America cannot allow this conflagration to become a fuse that will ignite coordinated, coordinated conflicts across the globe. We therefore must rigorously challenge China where we must while seeking opportunities to collaborate where, with it where we can. The Middle East, the infamy that issues from the inhuman attacks perpetrated by Hamas must be answered. Israel complies with uh, the law of war that prohibits the targeting of civilians, but civilians are injured and killed in any armed conflict. The concept of proportionality is most often misstated by the media to mean that all reactions in battle must not exceed the destructive power of the initial blow. This is incorrect. The object in war is to win, not to trade blows endlessly. International humanitarian law recognizes that civilians may be harmed when they are near legitimate military targets whose destruction conveys an anticipated military advantage. This advantage, however, must outweigh collateral harm, which cannot be inordinate. To win this fight, which Israel did not seek, Israel must destroy Hamas. This, however, does not mean that Israel and its allies cannot show compassion. The Abraham Accords provide a platform on which we may build. Let us do so with expedience. Should China gain a strategic foothold in the Middle East, Displacing it will be arduous. We should remember the struggles President Anwar al-Sadat faced in removing the USSR and its ideology from Egypt. Such action in the face of China's economic power might prove almost impossible today. China constructed its first overseas military base in Djibouti in 2017. Coupled with other redoubts, China is positioning itself as a global military power. It is also empowering Iran for the institution of a multi-decade strategic partnership, which supports Tehran's terrorist actions resulting in regional instabilities, needless conflicts, carnage, and death. Terror terrorism precipitated by Iran diverts American military power from the Indo-Pacific theater. This is China's aim. NATO is not an appropriate model for this region. The Arab states of the Gulf, supported by the United States, must create a multilateral force in being, which builds on the Cooperation Council of the Arab states of the Gulf, as well as the work done within the Islamic Military Alliance to fight terrorism. In addition, Israel's role as part of a larger regional defense plan should be carefully considered for reinforcing efforts are a necessity to undermine Iran's belligerency and its intended acquisition of deliverable weapons of mass destruction. We must be concerned that if Iran determines America's will is insubstantial, 
It will redouble terrorist actions throughout the region that may also reach and envelop Europe and the Americas, for a resurgent Iran will feel little. The despots who rule Iran will never willingly give up their quest for strategic weapons. Iran will also never be satisfied with just threatening Israel and the United States, for it sees the Arab states of the Gulf as the embodiment of its central nemesis. Alliance for Freedom. Shared purpose with our NATO partners, as well as our alliances with Japan, Australia, the Republic of Korea, and what must become a multidimensional alliance with India are essential in countering China's march. A new trade alliance could be formed between these nations, Israel, the United States, uh, the Arab states of the Gulf, and other European countries. This revised entity should constitute a security-driven economic and financial alliance. It should also secure resilient supply chains that link together businesses. Dependencies on unreliable sources of supply for critical components or materials have costs. In their March 2021 letter that introduced the final report on the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, Chairman Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, and Vice Chairman Robert Wark, uh, the former Deputy Secretary of Defense, warned of the grave economic and security risks that will result from strategic blockages. What has been wrought by the Houthis is an example of this threat. In the Indo-Pacific, America must lead by expanding the quadrilateral security dialogue whose members are the United States, Japan, India, and Australia, and in integrating it with uh, the AUKUS union that includes the United Kingdom. The new defense alliance that should be formed should also have as its founding members the Republic of Korea and France. Such a new defense and economic pact could be called the Indo-Pacific Treaty Alliance. Non-treaty nations should be invited to be observers. As with NATO, specific defense spending goals should be promulgated. Given the threat China poses, defense spending increases on the part of all member nations should be sought. As we seek to strengthen our alliances overseas, we must secure our nation at home. To do so, we must adopt best practices from around the world. Rather than stating we have the answers to every problem, multifaceted teams of experts should be deployed to the top countries that lead in any particular field. For education, the systems of those nations that lead in scholastic attainment should be studied, mapped, and adopted. Healthcare is another obvious example. Nations that shut themselves in always become lost. Sparta in ancient Greece, Spain in the 17th century, and China before its recent emergence are notable examples. To secure America's schools, we should create a national program wherein injured or disabled veterans are recruited to serve as security officers and character character mentors in schools throughout America. Many disabled servicemen would love to serve in these capacities to protect and educate students. America is faced with an epidemic of obesity, which no health care program can remedy. We are also faced with a crisis of character. What better means to solve both problems could there be than employing disabled or injured veterans to serve as security guards and as after-school mentors in charge of military-based 
athletic programs, as well as community-related service activities employing students. Such an initiative could be funded by reprogramming up to 20% of the Department of Education's bloated budget, clearly exposing young people to those who have sacrificed much for their country would be of tremendous value to character building. To begin to solve the national disgrace that is our $34 trillion national debt, we must baseline federal programs to the Reagan era. Programs enacted since that time should be justified. The unchecked growth of federal government and deficits puts the entire nation at risk. As in any newly acquired business uh, whose failure triggers a change in management, several essential questions should be asked. When was, uh, when was the enterprise last successful? What changed? Only by having federal departments justify those programs that were created during the period of unchecked budgetary growth during the decades of this century can waste and excess be expurgated rapidly. Such a baseline would yield dramatic savings, reductions, and improvements in efficiencies. Things to come. We must not fear but embrace the future. Changes in technology wait for no one and for no nation. The concept of being a conservative is itself altered by the technological age in which we live. Life is transformed more in one decade today than it was in the span of 100 years in times past. The central question for a conservative is what from the past should be conserved, and by so doing, how will such things be altered by technology? A sagacious president will not fight change but embrace it, for science and progress cannot be stopped. Oft times, the enunciation of a policy can reduce the seemingly insurmountable foe to a contestable size. A modern stra strategy for addressing the threats we now face could be similar conceptually to the Strategic Defense Initiative, where just the program's announcement by President Reagan rendered the USSR's ICBMs almost useless as measures of national power, thus driving the Soviet Union into a technological race that ensured its demise. Is there a policy that might be enunciated that could neutralize the threats posed by China, Russia, or Iran, certainly a precisely articulated doctrine is needed to combat these menaces and would be thus of immense benefit. Final thoughts. Never think for one second that your principles are only for people who look like you, who share the same religion, creed, background, or economic status. The individual is sovereign and not the government. Free enterprise is the means to rid the world of poverty. Faith leads to hope and to the fulfillment of each of our individual gifts. These are the conservative convictions that are the bedrock of our country. A person who attained degrees at our nation's finest universities and held important positions in government recently confessed to friends why he became a conservative. His accomplishments suggest a fortunate background. His story is thus perhaps surprising, but should not be. This person was abandoned when he was a child and was raised under difficult circumstances. One day, just after his 12th birthday, he went to a local five and dime. He only had a quarter, so he bought a used book by an author he did not know. The Conscience of a Conservative was written by Senator Barry Goldwater, the Republican candidate for president in 1964. 
In its worn pages, this person discovered a truth that changed his life. All our lives begin with our first memories and end in our death. The road between these two points can be of our own creation or of someone else's. In America today, each of us has the capacity to make a choice as to which road we take. The freedom to make that choice is our nation's greatest gift to its people. This person realized that no matter his hardships or situation, he could choose a different path than the one he knew. He could choose a new course for his life, for he was endowed with liberty by a nation whose founding fathers believed that one of God's greatest gifts to humanity is free will. Free will and its exercise in a republic bound by law is the American experiment. It must never be stolen by an out-of-control government or by corporate goliaths, which endeavor to become monopolistic, having few precedents in history. The American experiment is unique. It must not be extinguished, lest this lantern to the world be lost. This story is true, for it is indeed my personal story. Never stop advancing the wonderful principles for which IWP stands. The people who seem most distant from the principles and hopes that you hold dear are the same citizens who most need to hear and learn what you have learned. Be the book that opens the hearts of others who may be in need, for in so doing you will strengthen the greatest country in the history of the world, the United States of America. God bless you, and God bless America. And I could sign a few books, John. Do you want to take any questions? Sure, sure. Love to. Hope I didn't go through it too, too fast. <laughs> Who would like to ask something? Go ahead, sir. Yeah, I have a different take on why officialdom uh, suppressed the idea that the COVID virus came out of the lab. And that is that if they were worried that people maybe came out of the lab, some might ask, did it come out of one of our biological labs? Well, which is some evidence. Well, I, well I, I personally don't believe that uh, COVID came out of a U.S.-based lab. However, there is substantial evidence that through our various government entities and the, uh, what has really happened, we used to talk about uh, the private sector capturing government. But now government, as we see with NIH, can capture private entities, you know, so there's an intermeshing. And certainly uh, work on uh, chimeras or genetically uh, uh, engineered uh, viruses was, I believe, farmed out to China from entities within the United States. We didn't know they were going to use it to build a... No, no I, I didn't say that. I, I didn't say that. The well, question it is... it seems bizarre that we would collaborate with our enemy number one and them with their enemy number one on uh, well, bioengineering. Well, let me tell you this, and uh, I think maybe a few military people here might know this. Interestingly enough, the Wehrmacht was trained by Russia in the 1930s on tank warfare within Russia because they wanted the uh, foreign exchange. So a lot of things have happened. Uh, 
you know, in, well, of course, we all know the story of Ford uh, in World War II. So uh, there are a lot of exchanges that are driven by economics. You know, John, I'm sure, remembers that a popular, it's somewhat questionable if it's exactly true, but people used to blame Pearl Harbor on the selling of the Brooklyn L, the, uh, the above-ground rail line, the steel from it to Japan. So there's always been this interaction in terms of moneyed interests and uh, countries that became enemies over time. So this is nothing new. Well, I, I, I really do believe it, it from everything I've seen that it came out of the, uh, uh, there were actually two labs in Wuhan and uh, it, I believe it came out of one of them and the most likely candidate is the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Well, but I have a whole book on this. Actually. If I could tap your uh, yeah. experience uh, yeah. from uh, in the national security apparatus, mm. who knows Oh, well, I don't. Okay. <laughs> I don't think you're more than a dozen people in the whole country, is that? Well, I, I, uh, I personally do not, uh, I'm not a uh, one who believes in conspiracies. There are certainly some conspiracies, but more often than not, the way I like to phrase it is that people with somewhat similar interests all over the world might see somebody, you know, Joe doing something in X country and say, gee, can I make use of that? And so you have a conglomeration of interests that mutually support each other, but they weren't designed or started in a dark, you know, back room somewhere. But it's just like anything. You see somebody doing something that, that may benefit what you're doing and you see cross purposes, uh, reinforcing purposes. So, so that's how what I see in the world happening more often than not. Uh, I, I think true conspiracies do occur, but they're few and far between. More often than not, it's people who have roughly similar goals or goals may, that may be reinforced by what somebody else is doing in meeting their own personal or or a governmental or corporate goal, and they ride on each other's backs. So that's how I see things. Yeah, uh, totally different topic. But mm. um, you, you often covered a lot of ground with this book. Uh, one of the things that stuck out to me was your discussion on the Abraham Accords and Iran on a, a exponential growth of that threat. Uh, we had a speaker come earlier this week to talk about Iran, and she, she mentioned that nuclear program there has, our, our response to it has grown or should grow from a, a non-proliferation strategy to a arms control strategy. And I'm curious if you feel like, one, if that delineation matters, and two, if it does, if she's right. So go from what hasn't worked to what will definitely not work. <laughs> uh, uh, arms control and, and John is, is far more of an expert, Dr. Wachowski, than I am. But uh, I have some parts in this book about uh, what we tried to do uh, with the Soviet Union. And at our point of exerting the maximum pressure 
on the Soviet Union to engage in arms control was when they came out with the SS-18 and SS-19 ballistic missiles, which General Scowcroft, you know, said marked the fact that the arms control regime that we tried to propagate was a complete failure. Now, you could find certain aspects of it that perhaps yielded some momentary advantages, but the fact is, I think I talk about in the book, very interesting thing, you may be familiar that the largest battleships ever built were the Japanese uh, Yamato and Musashi, and there was also an aircraft carrier that was built on the third hull. It was converted from a battleship while it was being built into a carrier, and it was, it was sunk. All, all three ships were sunk by various means. And the interesting thing is that these ships were all built in contravention of a whole raft of arms control treaties uh, that mandated the size of capital ships and the numbers and so forth. And Japan is a country, as we all know, that survives on the basis their protein principally is fish. And they actually drew all the Cecil netting, which is not indigenous, but comes from other countries, to cover with camouflage the construction of the largest uh, up to that time, warships ever built. So that just goes to show you uh, the point at which countries will go if they want to hide what they're doing to gain strategic advantage. Um, I think uh, also it, it might be mentioned, and people don't think about this, that General Leslie Groves, who was head of the Manhattan Project, uh, went to Oppenheimer, I believe, in 1943, and asked about the question because they knew that the war in Europe was going well and that it might end before the first uh, nuclear weapons, uh, atomic bombs, were ready. Could they deploy a radiological weapon? We had already, or were in the process of destroying German dams, which is arguably uh, you know, a, a means of mass casualty, of course, you know, with the so-called skipping bombs that were dropped. Uh, and the answer was, of course, there was enough radiological material that could have killed perhaps hundreds of thousands of people in Europe. But it was decided not to do that because the action would be so indiscriminate. Uh, the point of all this is, uh, could Iran take the nuclear material it has and form a jacket over a conventional munition and thus called, cause untold havoc if dropped in a, let's say, a financial center somewhere? Of course they could. So what stops them? The only thing that stops them is a most grave deterrent. It's certainly no sheet of paper, because any country that would contemplate doing what I just said is not interested with words on paper. W w would you agree, John? I will just note that... Um during the Cold War, the Soviet Union not only violated every single one of their uh, signed arms control agreements, but they had a strategy to violate the agreements. And most people in the arms control industry could not have told you that and were unaware of that strategy and, and were unaware of the multiple strategic purposes behind that strategy, which were not only for the purpose of achieving um, incremental military advantages, 
but for the purposes of counterintelligence in order to test our intelligence capabilities uh, by making a violation and then um, and facilitating their ability to continue maskirovka, which is the denial and deception uh, efforts that they used in order to camouflage uh, their, their various strategic facilities. Let me speak to what John said, because I do cover this a bit in the book in one of the last chapters. And it's the notion of liminal warfare. Uh, one second, I'll get to you. Uh, yeah, you, you. Or you are like, well, what practically lawfare is like use the uh, justice or breaking like the deals that you have in like inter in the international system to you use this to your favor, you know, like try to take advantage of that. But what you are uh, doing in the reality is your violence that. That you are using that to your favor. Like, for example, if I want like launch a, a rocket in some place, it is not a law, but I don't care about that because I am amplifying my decision of launch a, a rocket there, saying that uh, that's gonna say you know the United Nations says that uh, that's gonna help to the security in the world. So I don't know if you are agree with me that sometimes when you have some like like conflicts between two nations, one of these which is more in advantage than the other can have can use the legal system to be his favor. Well, I, I think what you're touching on if, if I understand correctly, it's something I do cover a bit in the book, and I call it threshold warfare. I've heard Europeans use the term liminal warfare. It's what, it refers to what can be perceived. And for instance, I read in the book about the Chinese balloons that came over America. And most people think, oh, maybe it was for intelligence gathering over our ICBM fields or something of that nature. I actually think a far more direct and major purpose of those balloons traveling or traversing our country was to test the disjuncture between our political decision makers and our response, military and intelligence and elsewise, because they were essentially mapping uh, not so much physical things, but the discordance between the political class in Washington, whether they want to recognize a threat because there are political costs sometimes of recognizing a threat rather than just papering over it, and how that decision-making corresponds or correlates with what we do in a military or intelligence vein or in a, uh, any type of hard or sharp power. So I think... Uh, that balloon, you know, 
think about the information China gathered of a, of a, of a geostrategic nature in sending that balloon over. At first, we were not even going to acknowledge it because it disrupted the prevailing narrative that various bases of power in the U.S. government wanted to propagate, so we just wanted to cover it up. It's very similar to what John was talking about. I was taken by the arms control industry, that people are vested. It's like the industry that made the buggy whip. They weren't too interested in seeing automotives propagate. So sometimes a fact, even if it's very apparent, like the emperor has no clothes, it's pushed aside because it disrupts too many, you know, uh, apple carts. You know, if it, you know, to use the vernacular. Well, what do you That's, think? I, I agree completely. There's a, there's such a vested interest in the arm by the arms control industry in in having a willfully blind perception and narrative about the strategic balance and the strategy underlying the activities of our adversary. Uh, it's a complete willful blindness about these matters. Yes, and in fact, World War I, if you look at the textbooks that were around before the beginning of World War I and Archduke Ferdinand and all that, they said a war in Europe, a major war, could not happen. Why? Because it would bankrupt every nation. That was the prevailing view at the time. And so you have these narratives emerge. Many times, they're just propagated initially by one person. It's the, for instance, a lot of our DEI, Herbert Marcuse, you know, just came out with some theories that managed to gain hold in, let's say, uh, Yale's English department, and somehow they get repeated and repeated, and ultimately they become entrenched. It's not because they're they have great merit, but because they serve a range of purposes that the propagator finds useful. And uh, I, I think that's true of so many things. It's not only arms control, it's true of how we view the world. And, uh, you know, I was watching, uh, I couldn't get uh, the network I normally watch on a hotel uh, set, uh, we drove in from North Carolina, so I watched CNN, and you would think that the fact that the woman director of the movie, Barbie, was not nominated for an Academy Award was the single most important issue facing America. <laughs> and, and that's all they wanted to talk about. So, I mean, if that, you know, we're all human, and we all want to be in a certain comfort zone. It's the rare individual who could place themselves in a position of discomfort to face reality. Uh, one of the greatest minds who ever lived, uh, Goethe, said the hardest thing to see is that which is in front of your own nose because you don't want to acknowledge reality. You'd rather have some kind of fantasy or quasi-fantasy that assuages your ego, that makes you feel good about things. And we're all guilty of it, but the whole idea is not allowing government to be guilty of it. Because we depend on government some, for some very important things. Any other questions from, from the group? Yes, sir. 
Well, uh, I believe the main thing is that we, uh, I view politics, most politics, uh, you might view it as a sphere of political action that envelops the whole world. And innumerable actors in every country are taking action, some good, some bad, some reinforcing, some dissonant with each other. But for actions to become prudent policies, you need a number of actions that reinforce other actions that coalesce to form a policy. For instance, when President Truman dispatched the battleship Missouri to Greece and Turkey in 1948, that corresponded with uh, Winston Churchill's famous address of a year earlier, the so-called Iron Curtain speech. And then you had Mao's victories in China. That all came together to form the Truman Doctrine, which held the line and provided the foundation for the rollback that John and I were involved in at the Reagan NSC. So what I'm trying to say is that actions are fine. They could be either good or bad. We've had a lot of good actions under certain Republican presidents, but they have to be merged and fused together with other corresponding actions to form policies. Luminous policies over time become national principles. That's why the, uh, our Cold War doctrine, you know, there were many books written, many philosophical treatises that all fuse the actions to the core of our nation, which are our founding, our religious faith, our families. When you mold all that together, you get something very powerful. If you just do a discrete action, it can be very ephemeral. So, John, what, what do you think? No, I, I think that you've captured it. Thank you. Well, I think you've captured it. Well, thank you for showing up, and I'd be glad to sign a few books. <laughs>